Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast with me, Barney Hoskins, and my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Joining us to discuss all that's new in the world's biggest archive of music journalism is the legendary Lloyd Bradley. Welcome back to Hammersmith, Lloyd. Thank you very much, Barney. I'm very glad to be here. <laughs> Do you realise it's almost four years since you were our guest on this podcast? I was talking Tom to, Vickers. I was talking to Mrs. Bradley about that this morning and saying, yeah, it must have been pre-pandemic. And people, it's weird because it's like the pandemic didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And you think, oh, I was there, oh, I was there recently. Yeah. No, I was there four years ago. It's extraordinary. Three years have just kind of gone from yeah, our yeah. lives. I yeah. keep thinking something happened six months ago and yeah. it was three years and six months ago. Exactly. But that might be happening anyway at this <laughs> age. <laughs> <laughs> Weren't you in here last week? <laughs> anyway, in this episode, we're going to ask you about your career as a journalist and author and particularly about a book that is about to celebrate its 10th birthday, which namely sounds like London, 100 Years of Black Music in the Capital. We'll also hear clips from an audio interview with Blood and Fire's Steve Barrow and hopefully find room to talk about Bessie Levette and the late, great Tina Turner. First off, given the title of your definitive book, Sounds Like London, what did London sound like to you when you were growing up? noisy (laughs) (laughs) London there was a continual soundtrack I mean nobody had headphones the Sony Walkman hadn't been invented you know so in my teen years you if you heard music you it was being shared so you know cars and vans and shops and you just you heard a soundtrack but the thing was I suppose was because there was so few outlets you know um, media outlets I think I mean I can remember Radio One launching. So we have you had Radio One, Capital came on at some point. I can't remember this was in London. So everybody was listening to the same stuff. You know you couldn't yeah. you couldn't avoid it. You know a van would pass you and it's got Radio One playing. You walk past the hairdressers with the door open and Radio One's playing. So it was in in some ways I loved this because it meant I experienced everything and there was some fantastic kind of shared events like a you know a Beatles record coming out was everybody celebrated it because everybody knew about it and everybody watched Top of the Pops and you know if you got the Temptations on there or something it was a bit of a bonus but most of the time everybody pop music was a shared experience I thought that was great. Yeah. When you were in last time, we we talked about how you came to write about music for the first time. So we won't cover that again, but it was a great story involving (laughs) George Clinton. But you you wrote for Blues and Soul and you interviewed Curtis Blow right at the kind of dawn of hip hop. And you did interviews with like War, Tina Marie and others. My first memory of you is of you walking into uh, the NME office in, I'm guessing it would have been about 1981. Yeah, it would have been, yes, early 80s, yes. I mean, I always remember this review you did of Prince Charles and the City Beat Band, and that was the first time I noted your byline. First first thing I did was, the reason I was brought in there was the late Cliff White brought me in, because Blues and Soul shared offices with a magazine called Black Music, a monthly, that kind of fancied itself as being a bit more... um, intellectual uh, <laughs> in its commentary on the uh, black music 
whether it was, I'll leave the readers. We've got, quite a, lot, we've got a lot of great Tony, things. Tony, Tony Cummins is a very good writer, yeah. A very funny bloke as well. Yeah. A very funny bloke. Yeah. But Neil Spencer wanted to do something. I I never read The Enemy. I really, I knew what it was, but, you know, I never read it. I wasn't particularly interested in it. And um, Neil Spencer, the editor then, wanted to do something explaining what folk was to his readers. Yeah. And he didn't really know how to do this. And Cliff White, who knew... I didn't really know Cliff. I mean, I knew who he was. But he said, oh, there's this uh, young guy, because, well, young-ish, you know. Um, <laughs> um, he still are young-ish. At, um, Blues and Soul. He'd be so to talk to him. So Cliff brought me in to meet Neil. And this was Carnaby Street days. He had his little office there in the corner. Um, we went in, he was talking about it, and I said, well, you know, what you kind of need to do is, it's almost a grid chart, you know, the years running down one side and the kind of styles running along the top. So we kind of worked on that, and Richard Shuzak, the designer at the time, he came in, and he was very keen on this idea. So we kind of roughed it out, and it was in two parts, and that. I actually still got mine in a frame in my office. Oh, very cool. It's very good, and, and I've I've recreated it two or three times for other things. You know, it's <laughs> like I had to do this thing for Hennessy, the drinks people on the British Black Music, and they again were at a loss of how to do this. I thought, mm, the enemy wall chart will, will rise again, <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, um, we did it, and. It was kind of amazing. I thought that would be the end of it. I was happy to help, you know, and I'd done Cliff a favour and Neil seemed like a nice enough bloke and Richard was a good laugh, so I was happy to help. I couldn't believe it when he offered me 50 quid. I was sort of like, I was astonished. And, um, and for each part. So I got 100 quid for this. He opened his drinks cabinet in his office. I'm thinking, God, this is brilliant, you know. I've had a couple of beers and got 50 quid for it, you know. And then on the way out, Phil, he was the deputy editor. Phil McNeil. That's mm-hmm. it, Phil McNeil. Neil said, oh, go and get some albums to review. <laughs> yeah, all right then, you know. And uh, <laughs> Phil gave me two or three albums and I reviewed them and I bought them back, you know, like when I bought my reviews in because there's no emails those days. I had no idea I could keep them. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I always loved record and tape exchange in Notting Hill Gate. You always find his albums with a sort of gold stamp on them saying yeah. review copy, <laughs> not for resale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but the thing was, I mean, I was, well, would have been mid-twenties by then. But for the last ten years of my life, when I was actually working for a living, there was two things were currency, and that was albums and clothes, you know, and... The fact that I was getting one of those for free now was just brilliant. Yeah, you know, yeah. I couldn't believe it. And so then I did some... Neil asked me to... Did these reviews, and, and it just sort of went from there. I mean, that's yeah. when it started. And met some really nice people, people that I'm still good friends with at The Enemy. You know, yourself, Barney, Matt Snow, the late Andy Gill, the late Gavin Martin, you know... Yeah, Gavin was at my wedding. That was 40 years ago, you know. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Neil, I still bump into Neil from time to time because he lives close to me. Um, that was brilliant. These are yeah, people that are still friends. And what I'm, I learned most about the enemy, what I enjoyed, I got from it most, was I learned how 
the music media in relation to the music industry worked. Didn't learn that in Blues and Soul. It was too kind of provincial, yeah, if yeah. you like, right? But there, I learned about how it all works. That was that was probably what I t- the biggest takeaway I had from the enemy. I mean, how did you find the enemy? I and mean, obviously, it was it goes without saying it was a pretty white environment. Well, yeah, but then again, the entire media industry was. was. I mean, yeah. you know, you can't single the enemy out. Everywhere was blues yeah. and soul was. You know, yeah, right. um, black music was. Yes. You know, yes. so it's a bit unfair to sort of describe it as a white environment, like it was something as if special. it was uniquely white. No, no sure. I mean, like I say, I learned a lot about how the media worked, how record companies worked. Enjoyed it. It paid better than Blues and Soul. <laughs> and it had a bit more cachet about it. I think my biggest problem with it was I would bring Neil acts that I had heard about. And then as soon as they broke big, someone else would take them. Yeah, yeah. And, and that... Me and my missus used to have a good laugh about that, really, you know. Oh, you won't do him again, you know. Other than that, it was... I mean, And that didn't kind of matter. I mean, because I was aware of it, I knew about it. It didn't really bother me. And I think I was getting easily as much out of the enemy as it was getting out of me. Fair enough. One of the earliest pieces you wrote for The Enemy was about Beggar and Company, which we're going to feature on the home page. And that ties in, you know, to a considerable degree with, with sounds like London. So you were writing about the, the so-called kind of Brit funk movement, you know, mm. pretty early. I mean, did you... How important was that to you as a sort of expression of black Britishness in, in London? And, and what, how do you look back on that now? Well, I look back on it as, yes, it was important because it you just summed it up. It was an expression of black Britishness. I mean, perhaps more relevant than that was Lover's Rock. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. can remember being told by one or two of the enemy's um, reggae correspondents, and he did air quotes there, might I add, um, <laughs> that uh, Lover's Rock wasn't real reggae. And that was, I think, that was the thing that really got me thinking, I've got to get out of it. Right, okay. You know, Beggar and Co, great. I mean, I was. it was good to get the chance, and the boys really appreciated it, because mm. they wouldn't have been there if I hadn't pushed for them, mm. you know? It was one of these things, I think, well, I'm always going to be up against a wall here, really. Sure, yeah. Uh, was Love, Love's Rock the most specifically British form of reggae that sort of... Up to that point, that ever really happened. Up to that point, yeah, it was yes. Yeah, I mean, because you know, I you know was aware of it at the time, and probably like a lot of people, felt it was very light, felt it's very sweet. But actually, in retrospect, it's it's fabulous. It's, it was it, pop music, yeah. For Christ's sake. So, of it course, was for yes. teenagers. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you had this, yeah, characters that assumed that black music exists for two reasons: mm-hmm. right? one, to help white people dance, and the <laughs> other as an anguished howl from the ghetto. Right. And the reality is 80% of it isn't that. And this was pop music for black teenagers that had grown up. And I thought, how dare you you tell me this isn't real reggae? You know, who made you the arbiter of reggae? Sure, sure. 
you know, I, I, I was really was, yeah, pretty cross about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Your yeah, chapter, the chapter on Lovers Rock in Sounds Like London, I think, in, you know, is what is one of the most striking, and I learnt so much from from that and you make the point that you know the music press and indeed like island records itself really kind of got behind you know well i'm not gonna say it was the opposite of that but roots it was reggae. what was deemed roots, to roots be reggae. roots reggae what, what, with Rast- what, rastafarianism yeah. as, a, as, a, as a central kind of ingredient in that and it's burning spear and it's and it's not mm. you know it's not um it's not janet it's not janet k no 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 i think it comes from a sort of white desire to grasp at some notion of authenticity that you don't have any idea about really you know it's like well this is somehow more intellectual or more real than than something that actually is real and well and i suppose more jamaican as well sure rooted in the island itself i think all of that plays into it but i think there was two things as regards roots reggae was hippies it was hippie was dead by this point Mm -hmm. right and roots reggae just took over from that it's (laughs) like everything you believed as as a hippie you could find in this you know Mm -hmm. dreadlocks was like long hair vegetarianism you know self-sufficiency smoking loads of weed you know it was all there and blackwell marketed that really well he marketed bob marley to hippies Mm -hmm. you know or former hippies or would-be hippies so that worked you know and the other thing is a slightly more patronizing element that us darkies supposed to need your help you know so therefore we can't quite be making it by ourselves and we've always got to have there's always got to be a struggle involved you know we couldn't possibly be saving up for a ford escort (laughs) (laughs) you make that point really well in the first chapter of sounds like london where you talk about lord kitchener who is already a well-known you know essentially a celebrity when he arrived on on the shores of england and and Yet the origin story that was kind of parroted here was one that, you know, he'd had to play around pubs and sort of essentially beg to get his music listened to, and that's just totally the opposite yeah, of what of it's what nonsense. Happened. And, you know, the idea that we can't understand you, of course you can. Part mm. of Calypso was about enunciation, and you're not going to be able to tell your stories if you can't tell your stories properly. Yes, so, yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, that... that does just be you're entirely right that sums it up yes well for any what any listeners who haven't read it it's important to point out that sounds like london really does go back to the very start of the story in fact it goes all the way back to 1919 doesn't it you, you mentioned the uh, the south london syncopated orchestra the southern or- syncopated southern 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 didn't they come from streatham um <laughs> <laughs> But so you know, it goes. But the the first chapters are you know are, are about Calypso and about, and then there's a great chapter on the Steel Bands, which which is fascinating. So I think you said it, it isn't quite a hundred years of black music in the capital, but it sounds better than ninety seven well, or something. Was, yeah, when yeah. Um, <laughs> when uh, it came out in two thousand and thirteen, yeah. so I wrote it essentially in two thousand and twelve, and but well. God, yeah, I can't believe it. 93 years <laughs> and, and half. Hopefully it will still be being published in 2019. And and it was, but now, you know, we've gone past the yeah, yeah. years. Yeah. It's very, I, I lived for 15 years on the Crossways estate in Bow, uh, not knowing at the time that one of those kids running around my knees was Dizzy Rascal, another one was Wiley, and there was a pirate radio station broadcasting for one of the three blocks, the three towers, 
And then, you know, I was trying to tune into Radio 4 and sort of 5 in the afternoon, and you'd get suddenly interrupted by this other radio station talking about um, a, a club in Stratford, usually, where ladies were invited to arrive f- for free before 10 o'clock and no jeans and trainers. And so this stuff was sort of happening. It was it was always so, sort of there. I think one of the most interesting that's happened in, in recent years is that really the only working-class popular music is black music now. The white popular music has become almost exclusively a middle-class occupation. Yet grime and its various successors and predecessors is is, is a fairly unique sound and thing. I mean, where, where, where do you place grime in the sort of the continuum of... I think the audience changed yeah. more than the music changed. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've always maintained is the British popular music audience is far more robust than the gatekeepers give it credit right. for. It's like people genuinely like the proper thing. It's like they don't want what's being given to them. And mm. once you got into the 21st century, technology was so available to everybody that essentially you didn't need a record company, you know? Then yeah. people like Wiley could get their music out, and once it's out on a pirate radio... It's, I mean, Lovers Rock managed to circumvent the record industry through sound system culture. Mm-hmm. Yes, Pirate radios were sound systems. Yes. It's just on the airwaves instead of in a dance hall. Yeah, it was yeah. exactly the same thinking went on. But now you've got a massive audience. You know, you've got... A 14-year-old kid who could never go to a dance or never go to a record shop can listen to grime and actually listen to grime as it's supposed to be presented. Not, you know, this isn't some Radio 1 producer's Mm -hmm. idea. I mean, as a good example, in exactly the same way as Radio 1 launched after the ships, you know, the ships showed the BBC up. So they launched Radio Mm -hmm. 1, poached a load of DJs from the ships. This was the same, one extra, Radio 1 Extra. It was one year, or the year before Extra finally got going, was um, there was a survey in London, and more people, Rinse, which was still illegal at that point, came out above Radio 1 in this listener's chart. And that's... That's deep shame for yes. the BBC, really. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So they thought they had to do something about this. Poached a load of DJs. And for the first three or four years, it it was kind of all right, you know. Uh, it was a bit anarchic, but it was kind of supposed to be. But now, if you look at Radio 1 Extra, so 20 years on, it appears to be deliberately, quite deliberately, I believe, separating the music from the culture that created it. Uh-huh. And the pirates didn't do that. The pirates were the culture. Yes. And I believe, right, you've got kids in cities, not just London, mm-hmm. you know, Coventry, Birmingham, Bristol, whatever, that grow up around this. They hear it all the time, you know. Why not on the radio as well? So naturally they're going to gravitate to what they recognise, which is the life around them, you know, their friends, how they talk and all of this, you know. So... I think the pirates were able to create a world where people genuinely had a choice in what they wanted to listen to. And so many people moved towards Mm -hmm. that because there was a time, what, 10, 20 years, 15 years ago maybe, when the only things in the charts were grime and X Factor. Yeah. You know, and, and that kind of showed you that 
well, actually, nobody's listening to the record companies anymore. The mm-hmm. assumed gatekeepers of our musical heritage and culture, nobody cares, sure. you know. So that's the thing. I think the audience changed. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, this is something else, that the idea that kids, and they were kids, mm. like Jammer, Wiley, Tiny Temper and that, didn't have the smarts to react to this, didn't didn't know how to do it. Sound men have been doing it for years, yeah, yeah. you know. Adapting what they did for their audience, leading their audience on slowly. Of course these kids could do that, you know. Mm-hmm. So they developed what they were doing, it evolved. This mm-hmm. is why Grime turned over so quickly, yeah, yeah. kind of styles and whatever. It was continually adapting to its own audience mm-hmm. and became massively popular. Of yeah. course it did. Yeah. And you know, as regards the authenticity element of it, you still got kids and people that wanted to sell as many copies of a record as possible yeah, yeah. because everybody does. You yeah, know, yeah. So it's what you sure. go in a recording studio for. So what you ended up with was very smart young kids reacting to what they saw around them and slowly, kind of creepingly, taking over the music business or making the music business redundant, which is essentially what they did. I think the last chapter of Sounds Like London is called Who Needs a Record Company? And it was a quote from one of the kids, you know, like a 22-year-old kid's telling me, well, who needs a record company? I mean, also kind of going back a bit further, I mean, the title of the book is perfect because, I mean, I've lived in London, I was born in London, lived in London all my life, and black music is sounds like London because the two things happened really in the 70s was people could afford large hi-fi systems for domestic use for the first time and the, the car cassette player sort of came in and... For the first time, you started hearing music in the streets in a way that, let's say, a transistor radio isn't the same thing. A car would go past blasting either kind of American R&B or later on hip-hop. Soul to soul. Soul to soul 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 was all you heard one um, Absolutely. I remember, you know, I was actually weird enough in Los Angeles, this car drove up next to us at traffic lights playing Back to Life. And at that point, I knew my career was over. I mean, it was one of those moments. But but there was something about that sound, like the late 70s, early 80s, when the volume got turned up. Well, interesting. Sorry to cut you, but interesting. When you was talking to me earlier and you said, what did London sound like to me? And I said, well, everybody's the same. Mm. I mean, that was pre-transistorization, yeah. really. Yes. It was technology that changed that. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you couldn't have a valve radio in a car. And, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's suddenly people started making their own choices. Yes. And, yeah, the cassette, I think, yeah. changed everything. Huge. You know? you know, a car would go past, thundering out, kind of, it could be dub reggae, it could be lover's rock, it or, could um, be anything. Or shops know? as well. You yeah. walk past a shop because, you know, a hairdresser would have a cassette player yeah. in it, whereas mm. before it had the radio. Yeah. Yeah. No one's going to bring in records, you know. Yeah, you're not yeah, going to have yeah. a record player in it. But the cassette, it there was a democracy yes. to music yeah. then, or a democracy to the sound of of the streets. Absolutely. Uh, but also, I, I mean, it's interesting that um, we'll talk about it in a minute, Steve Barrow, Blood and Fire, talks about how, sonically, how the, the black audience demanded 
a weight of low end to the music that they that they, they listen to. Uh, that sounds a little patronising. It does sound patronising. Well, it, it sounds patronising, but but you, when you think of black music, so much of it is about bass and drums, whether it's reggae, whether it's our funk. Turning up that's the volume. Like, no, that's you, that's you far agree. too reductive. Okay. You can't okay. say that. You know, it's like I someone said to me the other day, right? Oh. Yeah, black music, you've got to be able to dance to it. Have you? Thought? No, that's, for, no, that's you know, rubbish. That's rubbish. I mean, really? It's yeah. like, no, it's not. Yeah. It's like, black music is as complex oh, and sure. as varied mm. as any other thing. Yes. I mean, it's like white music, okay, right? You wouldn't dare say that about white music, would you? I think to put it in context, and we'll hear it in a second, Steve Barrow was talking specifically about the sonics of open-air sound sound systems, where if there wasn't what he calls a heavy bass and crisp topping, those things needed to cut Mm. through when you were were playing tunes outside. So I think that, that was really the point. That was another reason why Lovers Rock sounded like it did, because sound systems sounded different in... London or England because they're all indoors. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it had to adjust itself to that. Yeah. yeah. So I agree, but I should have let you finish. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's, yeah. I, you know, for me, I heard the sound of London changed in the late 70s and through the 80s. And it was the predominance, the dominance of black music in London as, as the sound you heard in the streets as you walked down the street. That was, I mean, that was due to the sort of assumption of cool because remember the late 70s second half of the 70s mm. you had the ghetto blaster yeah which by its mere name right and the idea was people walked along and i don't know they weren't going to be playing kylie minogue on it you know it was about it was a badge of cool what yeah. your car was playing was a badge yeah, of yeah, cool. Yeah. it was why you know soul to soul just swept yeah. all before them one summer because yeah it was the thing you needed to be hearing mm. in the street. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Since we talked about the audio, why don't we fill our listeners in? Yeah, I mean, it, it's Frank Broughton interviewing him in 1998, Steve Barron in 1998. This is part of, I guess, the research for Bill Bruce and Frank Broughton. Last night, a DJ saved my life, book. yeah. So it's very much about DJ culture. Steve Barron's talking about the evolution of sound system culture in Jamaica, going right back to sort of the influence of the American radio stations. And then the first people starting to put sound systems outdoors in Kingston, largely. Pioneers like Count Machuki, who's one of the first of the DJs to actually speak between records, which evolved in itself. Uh, The selector and the DJ and how they were two things, could be one thing, could be two things. He talked about the the various pioneers, Duke Reed, Coxham Dodd, and uh, he, he talks about Ruddy Redwood and King Tubby and... The idea of getting pre-released dubs, dub plates to the, to the DJs on a Friday night, so that they could play them on the Saturday. Let's listen. He's been talking about this, what he, how he feels about the sound of Jamaican music. The heavy bass and crisp top thing, the mix, the actual sound of a Jamaican record, which is now more or less everywhere around the world, you know, yeah. in that sense, that develops out of playing open-air dances. Yeah. You've got to have those cut in the record and mixed in the record in order 
because uh, if you play a record that ain't mixed that way at a dance, you can't fucking hear it. Yeah. You know, it don't work. You just take that off, man, straight away. You know, then that record's not it. It's wrong mix. It's got to have the, the full bass. And, you know, all the time, you're developing these sound systems, so by the end of the 60s, these are, these are fucking monstrous things. So it's, it's very interesting, you know, he, he describes in, in some sort of detail how things evolved, talks about the rivalry between sound systems, about how they'd be working in a similar geographical area at the same time and you could get two or three different sound systems working, and how people like King Tubby and King Tubby's protégés like scientist Mikey Dredd sort of created this culture of producing vocal-free versions, of the version of records and getting them to DJs. Uh, as I said, he, he also talks about his own kind of relations, uh, reggae and Jamaican music. You know, so, so I pursued it and, and, you know, tried to overcome what prejudices I might have had because I'm someone who likes, you know, Frank Sinatra... Billy Eckstein, those type of class singers who don't sing bum notes and all right, of that. So yeah. when I hear someone like Little John at nine years old and he's like, or Little Junior Reed, you know, when he's 13 and he's completely flat, you know, you go, oh, the guy's flat, oh, fuck. But it but, doesn't matter because it's working. No, because what, that rhythm is so strong, it doesn't matter how, what, how flat you are in a yeah. certain sense. And then again, what is flat to the Western ear is could be also like a, some sort of African cadence. Right, yeah. Because when you listen to a lot of those other scales, it's not just the Western scales you're listening to. So exactly, you tune yeah. in, you broaden your mind, you broaden your perceptions, and all through some music that's supposed to be a fucking novelty. Yeah. That's what I like about it as well. It's got that sting in the tail. Yeah. You know, the, um, you know, it's got the power to do that, you know. And it's nourished... The, the fact is, it has nourished dance culture Absolutely. to an extraordinary degree. Yeah. He said fuck all other than manage to be offensive. We talk about the White Man Reggae Club, about how they essentially ran things. This is what you were mm. talking about before, about deciding that Roots music was yeah. reggae and Lovers Rock couldn't possibly be reggae because black people were doing it for themselves, to themselves, mm. you know, right? And this was it. It's like, oh, I like Frank Sinatra and all of this, right? But now I like reggae. If I wanted to say, mm -hmm. oh, now I like punk, nobody would believe me, mm -hmm. right? This was it, right? This is one of the reasons I, I really liked Q magazine and I really I wanted to write books because I could say what I wanted yes. to then and I wasn't at the mercy of the white man reggae club that was going to tell me what reggae was mm -hmm. or what it should be, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. On a more slightly favourable note, I mean, <laughs> what did you think of Steve Barrow's Blood and Fire records? I thought it started off really well. I was really coming. I knew Steve. I worked in the same record shop as him for a okay. while. Which, um, which was? Honest John's. Right. 
I'll tell you what, uh, Blood and Fire, I thought, was a really good idea. And I think Hucknall and his management... Because I remember yeah. talking to either Hucknall or his manager about it. And I thought, this is a great idea, mm. you know, you want to keep something alive and all of that. But the first... I mean, I've probably got about the first ten records of Blood and Fire. And then it just got far too nerdy. It just started repeating mm. itself, everything was all the same production crews doing stuff, you know. I don't want 14 different versions of something. I want to hear a tune, maybe right. the... Most people do, you know. Yeah. It, it just got a bit up its own but ass. I, I think the one thing they did do really well is master stuff really well. Oh, re- yes, yes. Uh, I mean, the stuff that... The early stuff they did, Burning Spear and that sort of stuff, right... Sounded great. I'd never heard it yeah. sound so I mean, good. for kind of younger listeners, you've got to remember, let's say from 87, 88, the mid-80s, the appearance of the CD and all the record companies chucking out all their back catalogue and CD, incredibly badly mastered. I mean, I got a Ruth Franklin box set, and they just sound miserable, you know, compared to what we knew the vinyl sounded like and so on. And, and Blood and Fire, I'm getting like some of the Glenn Brown, King Tubby one, and, think, mm. and, and thinking, this actually sounds like these records are meant to sound like, you know. And uh, never sounded like that before. Yeah. They were probably remastered better mm. than they were mastered yeah. in the first place. And yes. definitely the reproduction onto yeah. vinyl or onto those CDs, you know, was going to be mm. a truer reproduction. Yeah. Of course, then you kick off that argument about, oh, yeah, but it's not got the warmth of vinyl. Oh, um, yeah, fuck right off. It's yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. know, I'm sure when King Tubby mixed that, he wanted the listener to imagine someone was frying chips in the background. No, yeah. he didn't, you know. Yeah. No, I, I, I can, I, I'm a vinyl sceptic because unless you've got the best system in the world, your the real record's going to sound worse than it does on a very a well-mastered digital... Yeah. I've got no problem with CDs and, and digital yeah. thingies now. You know, no, none. Me either. So, I mean, the, what he's saying in, in that clip that we heard about singers being flat and that maybe being, you know, an African influence, I mean, it's so patronising and it's peculiar to hear that from someone who purports to be trying to, you know... No, but, but looking at it really kind of from one point of view, yeah. you know, it's not not making any attempt to understand no. it or have a wider perspective no. or, or even imagine that other people might have a perspective. No. It is this thing, again, like, oh, well, these poor darkies don't really know what they're doing and mm. they needed us to sort it out for them, you know. Oh, it's flat, but, you know, that might be harking back to his African roots. Fuck right off, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. So. Go on, <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the point... What can I say? I found it quite an interesting interview, and I loved the records that they put out. I loved the half the Congos. Oh, that's a great U, Keith Hudson's Pick a Dub. I mean, the yeah, I'm not saying these, 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 these yeah. are stuff that like, I'd bought as records yes. years ago, and I was glad to get them on really uh, good sounding. As, yeah, a yeah. good sounding CD. Half the Congos actually passed me by the first time around, and Adam Sweeting wrote, wrote a rave review of that reissue of it, and I kind of got it on the basis of the review, which I don't. You know, not something I often do, mm. and it's still one of my absolute favourite records. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Mm. 
Well, so obviously, I just want to give a shout out to Bass Culture uh, when reggae was king, which came out in 2000, which is sitting here with sounds like London on top of it. But this is an incredibly important reggae book, maybe the definitive book well, on, was, on reggae. It was an interesting. I mean, I think it was through Matt Snow that that came about. I, okay. had, I had no intention of writing a book about mm-hmm. reggae. Okay. Know? I owned reggae records. I liked reggae, you know, and all of that, right? And... Matt was good friends with an editor of Penguin, John Riley. Yes. And he said that him and Riley had been at dinner one night and, you know, discussing the idea that there'd never been a history of reggae written by a black person. They'd all been written by white blokes, right? And so, oh, isn't it about time we changed that? So my name came up and he asked me if I would be interested and I said I had no intention of writing a book about reggae, but, you know, when Penguin phones... <laughs> <laughs> you change your tunes. <laughs> exactly, literally. <laughs> and uh, I was really lucky. And John left... John was the original editor of the project. And I, he left, moved on to a different publisher after I'd been... I was maybe, I don't know, six months into it, which means I'd done nothing. It's like your A&R man leaving, isn't it? When yeah, just signed yeah. And, and it was kind of interesting. I had to go into this office, and there was John and this bloke I'd never seen before. And uh, he said, well, it actually says in your contract that um, if you want to leave, you can. You, we'll tear up the contract, and you can go with John to where he's going. And I thought... I've never heard of where he's going, you know. it's Yeah, it's a big publisher, but Penguin, no, mm. you know, I'm, I'm staying here with this bloke I've never met before. <laughs> you know. so I'm staying with Columbia Records. <laughs> yeah, you know. And um, so this fellow was Tony Lacey, and Tony was, honestly, he's retired now, and publishing needs Tony Lacey's. Yeah, because he's a lovely guy. He's not only a lovely guy, but he was... The spirit of publishing was with him. It's like, I want a book. I want the best book I can. I'm paying you money to write this book because you know what you're talking about. I'm not going to attempt to influence you. You know, I think the first thing, one of the first things he said to me, he said, really, he said, all I know about reggae is Bob Marley and UB40, but you're going to change that for me, aren't you? (laughs) Aren't you, Lloyd? And it was great. I mean, Tony embraced what I did because I approached this book I was sick of reading the story of reggae as the story of Bob Marley with other bits stitched on the side right and I realised of course what that was was because it was easy the white man reggae club ran things because they did it through Chris Blackwell and all Chris Blackwell wanted to do was promote Bob Marley so therefore that was the path they followed and yeah, if Max Romeo or Lee Perry and that sort of happened, mm-hmm. to that was it. But the main thing was, it was all about Bob Marley, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, I know that's not the story, because I used to go to Sound System, sure. and you never heard Bob Marley on Sound yeah, System, yeah. not in London yeah, anyway, yeah. you know? So, and I also realised that after my first visit to Jamaica, and just hanging out talking to people in and outside the music business... Because everybody's sort of connected. It's so small, Kingston, you know. It really is a village. And I kind of quickly realised that the driving force of this story about reggae was sound systems. It 
wasn't any particular person or, you know, like icon like that. Mm -hmm. It was sound systems. They were the people, the sound men, ran things. Styles were born on sound systems. Music evolved on sound systems. People became stars on sound systems. And as soon as it moved away from sound system, it came, became something else yeah, yeah. and was no longer germane to yeah. the story. Yeah. So I thought, well, that's the story I've got to tell. Mm. I've got to tell the story of sound systems and usher other people in on top of it. And But when you're talking to people like, you know, Lee Perry or Leroy Sibbles or Derek Harriet and that, they all start talking about sound systems mm. because it was what was central to what they did. Yeah. So, therefore, this story, this was the story of sound systems. Yeah. I mean, it's an absolutely fantastic book. I mean, I'd previously, the previous book I'd read was David Katz's book, History, which I didn't get on with for a variety of reasons, but this book I absolutely fell in love with. You're a great storyteller, Lloyd. You I know. didn't tell the story. I let, I yeah, you let other people tell I let other people yeah, 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 sure. far better qualified yeah, yeah. than me to well, tell it. Sure. You know? You told their stories very, very well. You put them together very well. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it's a fantastic piece of work. I think that's a common thread between both Bass Culture and Sounds Like London because they're yeah. both big books, right? They're both big in scope and big in importance and there's a lot to bring together and I think that the way that you do that, I think what you just said actually speaks to the heart of that, which is finding the right people to talk to and then giving them the space to talk while putting it together in a way that makes it engaging and readable and just really, really interesting. Well, so many people, I mean, it's like anybody, any of us know who you meet so many people in the music business, 60% of them are boring, but 40% (laughs) of them are really interesting. Mm -hmm. And the really interesting ones will be natural storytellers. It's like you can't stop people telling stories, you know. And what I wanted to do as well was... It didn't kind of matter who they were. It was like they didn't have to be a big selling artist in order to make the points. I'd rather they made the points Mm -hmm. than add their name to put on the back cover, you know? And so many people... I mean, everybody in Jamaica's a storyteller anyway, you know, Mm -hmm. so it wasn't hard. Also, I found that people actually really enjoy you arriving with no apparent agenda you know and you say well so tell us what's it like at one of king tubby's dances and they sort of start and say no what's it really like what did you do you know mm. and, and that and then they realize it's a kind of personal story and all of that i mean yeah. i think the biggest the best example of that in bass culture is horace andy you know mm-hmm. big star yeah and very nice bloke and he was one of Coxon's first singers at Studio One. Right. He was at Studio One from quite early on. And I want because I obviously wasn't going to talk to Coxon because he was gone by mm-hmm. that point. I wanted to get to the essence of Studio One. What was it, you know? So I said, "What? What was it made Studio One so special?" And Horace said, "Well, we had all the best musicians and the best singers there." I said, well, yeah, I know that. But but what made the best singers and musicians go to Studio Mm -hmm. One? And he said, well, because the good singers and musicians were there, so others wanted to go there. I said, yes, but there must have been a point (laughs) at which there were no singers and musicians at Studio One. So why did the best 
singers and musicians gravitate there? Why did mm-hmm. people go there? You know, and he thought about it for a while, and he said, "Well, Coxon was the only studio that let us smoke weed in the studio." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's those details that really count. And that is yeah. in, yeah. And then he went into it. It's like, well, Duke Reed was an ex-policeman, so he wouldn't have it. Right? <laughs> Byron Lee wouldn't yeah. even let you smoke weed outside. He'd chase you down the street. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And all of a sudden I thought, this is really interesting. This is the real story, <laughs> yeah. Way, isn't it? Yeah, those, those, yeah. those and, quite and, pedestrian But also, also, going back to the thing about sound systems, well, both Duke Reed and Coxon, is that, is that they ran sound systems. If you wanted your record played, the best way to get your record played was have him record it in the first place. Yeah. Duke Reed, Coxon, and Prince Buster. Yeah. People forget Prince Buster in this, you know. People remember him as oh, this old boy who does a bit of scar, you know. No, he mm. was mm. he was serious. I mean, he was the big three, right. and Buster was the third. Right. Yeah, yeah. He used to talk about, you know, the... Um, he gave me a lot of kind of uh, intimate detail about sound system, you know, like um, how if... It was spoken about in Kingston that Duke Reed was going to play a new tune at his dance on Friday. It would, it would, people would be waiting yeah. outside, you know, from the day before. Yeah. And the the importance of sound system. I mean, this is something that people don't talk about. They talk about the music and all the sonic qualities and all of that, right? But The point was about sound systems, and this is why they're so important to all of this. It was the first large cultural expression that downtown Jamaicans had to call their own. Yeah. They thought it up. They owned it. It was so important to them, sound system. It was more than just somewhere you went or somewhere you listened to music. This was where you could be you. you And, And people were. They weren't... It wasn't like... People associate it with think about oh, the idea of a rave where everybody goes goes off their heads and mm-hmm. jumps up and down for like three hours, okay? It wasn't. It was like a real kind of meeting place, mm-hmm. a bit of a fashion show. People yeah. would exchange gossip. You'd catch up with your mates. Mm-hmm. You'd have a good laugh. You'd tell jokes, you know, this sort of stuff. It really was somewhere you met. Meanwhile, Jamaican radio was not playing any of this music at all. No, Jamaican radio was essentially the BBC, yeah. because at this point, when sound system started, Jamaica was still a colony. Yeah, yeah. So anything that is going to be as influential as radio mm. is going to come from London. So therefore, the yeah. two Jamaican radio stations were modelled totally yeah. on the BBC. I mean, actually, Steve yes. Barrow does talk about that to some, some extent mm-hmm. in, in, in the audio. And also, the other the live music was... Basically, jazz, big band stuff played in the hotels. Not only in the hotels. Yeah, I mean, it was in Kingston as well. Sure. But it was expensive. Yeah. You know, you've got, you know, a 15-piece mm. orchestra. They've all got to be paid. Yeah, you know? sure. yeah, of course. To bring things back to Sounds Like London, because I think this really ties in, the, the concluding part of Sounds Like London, you write... The future for London's black music at the time of writing looks even more exciting than its past. While the conventional music business has been falling apart, these guys, from Lloydie Cox and Dennis Bavell onwards, have developed the skills to progress without any big money safety net. Now, more than ever, the unique black community experience, the sound system will really come into its own. And I wanted to ask you how you feel 10 that years on. That good, didn't it? That sounded, <laughs> <laughs> it sounded great. I agree. Because <laughs> um, that is exactly what we've just been talking about. And I wanted to ask you how you feel 10 years on about 
the future for London's black music? Where are we at now? I think what I was getting at then has happened because now, you know, you've got grime artists headlining at Glastonbury now. Mm -hmm. You didn't have that 15 years ago. You know, it's... I think this is... You couldn't actually ask for more, that grime has become, in the way rock and roll did, really significant Mm -hmm. in the fabric of British pop music now. You can't talk about British pop music in the 2020s without including grime. And I think 10 years ago, to to present that as a, a possibility in 10 years' time, right, I think a few people would have laughed at you, mm-hmm. but a lot of people would be, wow, if we could do that, yeah. you know? And what happens next is, I have not got a clue, but then again, I'm not supposed to have yeah, a clue, right. you know, none of us are, yeah. right? I'm, uh, it's this thing, I mean... There's a really, really brilliant book, best book I've ever read on music, called Music, A Subversive History by Ted Giola. Giola? Yeah. I'm not sure of his name. Gioia? G- G- yeah. G-I-O, I think it's yeah. pronounced G-I-O. G-I-O. He wrote a book on West Coast jazz. That's well, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's written great. a book called Music, A Subversive History. Mm-hmm. And he uses this great phrase in it. He said, from the beginning of time, music has been a succession of the same thing. It's magic into mathematics it starts off as magic then the machine gets hold of it you Mm -hmm. know and it becomes a matter of mathematics but in that time the magicians have moved on yeah and they're making new magic somewhere else and that's what's happening yeah it's happened over and and i think right we've got grime artists that have built a platform not just for themselves and the, the artists but the whole idea of the music and culture being, first of all, inseparable mm-hmm. and as present as a part of this. And I think they're smart enough and their offspring are smart enough to crack on from mm-hmm. there. Yeah. How can I retire? The devil was a liar. Shot my nigga Dave, call he made it through the fire. Should have left me out the politics. All I know is fetter cheese and dollar chips. Niggas went from selling weed to scholarships. They're billing me to holler flips. And now they holler flips to get at me. I could be a beetle if you let it be. I needed you to set me free. Well, look, two extraordinary books, two of the best music books ever written uh, sitting here. Sounds like London and bass culture. So it's been fantastic speaking with you about those, Lloyd. I mean, of course, you've written all kinds of other things, including the autobiography of uh, the great Ian Wright. Uh, ghost, um, ghost, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what's uh, despite is, you being a chef? Yeah, yes, you're, got, a sh- got you're a man of many, many talents. Well, when I left school, you had to get a job, you know. I mean, you couldn't punch <laughs> about like you guys. <laughs> and um, I wanted to do cooking, so that's what I did. Yeah. Sitting in guilds. Very good. Fantastic. But you've also written, like, The Rough Guide to Running, The Rough Guide to Men's Health. I don't know how you, how you have time to... To, to cover all these bases, it's pretty it's impressive. Not, I mean, this is the thing. It's like, why shouldn't I? You know, it's like, why shouldn't I be able to write about men's health? Yeah, sure. As the same time, I can write about reggae. You know, yeah, um, so, so I don't know how you find the, find the time. Is what you seem very laid back when it's I meet you. I do for I'm a thinking, living. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you just lay on a beach in Florida for most of the I summer. Mean, d- d- <laughs> 
The interesting thing about this was we haven't talked about my time at Q Magazine at all. And one of the things that Q Magazine really taught me was about not having a personal agenda to advance in these things. Look at what's interesting. What's the story? Create the story for your readers, you know? And then you realise, well, if I can do that about, I don't know, hip-hop, right, you can apply exactly the same thing to, like, health, you know? I mean, I I was editorial director of Men's Health magazine here, and it was just, it was quite funny because... I just approached it in the same way as you would approach a magazine. It wasn't a health magazine. It was a magazine. Let's make it interesting. And then we can get some people who know about health. You can uh, <laughs> and it, you know. And, and then you think, well, it's the same thing on a slightly expanded format, you know. I mean, with the Rough Guide to Men's Health, I got a panel of experts in that did the expert stuff. Funnily enough. Funny. I was thinking, Barney Hoskins, picture of health. But, you know, it's it's just, I'm interested in things, you know. I mean, like I said, I never had any intention of writing a book about reggae at all, ever. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that I think people do appreciate, is I'm genuinely interested in them. I'm not trying to push my own agenda, advance myself, I'm actually really genuinely interested in what people have got to say, you know. Mm. And I think people respond to that. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So what are you interested in now? (laughs) Everything still. I mean, you know, I just like... So I've got a couple of things I want to do. What's happened to your funk book? I'm finishing that at the moment. It's, um, is it still called Funk is Its Own Reward? It is. It will, right. will never be called anything else, in spite <laughs> of the publishing company wanting to change that. To what? They wanted to put a tagline underneath, from R&B to hip-hop. Yeah, I know. So typical. Shit, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> Not to mince words. <laughs> you know, what you've got... I mean, this is... Um, I stopped writing it for a while because... I was so disappointed with the publishing company's approach to it, you know? It was... They'd given it clearly to some 26-year-old university graduate who knew absolutely... 26-year-olds. Who knew absolutely nothing about the music but didn't really care, you know? And this is a real problem. When you get... I was so lucky with Tony Lacey that he took a book about black music seriously... No, sorry, took a book about black music written by a black guy seriously. So many people won't do that. Mm. And so therefore, I had the impression that the book was not being taken seriously by the publishing company, that it was being palmed off. And the cover design they sent for me, I, I went off on one about that. It was so fucking awful, you know? So I put, just put that on hold for a bit and did yeah. other stuff, you know, until I calmed down. It took right. me about a year to calm down about that, right. you know? And I'm finishing it off now. And oh, good. Oh, God, I'm not kidding you. I am so enjoying it. It's okay. just, it's the chance to take a music that, no, it's not just a music. It was an entire cultural mm-hmm. movement. You've got jazz. There's three great black cultural movements, jazz, funk, and hip-hop, and 
they're more than just music. And the middle one, funk, is never talked about as mm. a cultural thing. It's just talked about, oh, it's here to help white people dance, you know, mm. and it became disco, you know? But there's this just so much more. And musically, it's so diverse. It's yeah, yeah. so complicated. It's It's so... People, it's about, I think, I've been trying to look at it as not the end product, which is the records, but the beginning of it, which is the ideas and the sense and the feeling that went into it, which all came out of, like, the late 60s or before that, the black arts movement mm. is such an influence on what happened in that particular time. And black America particularly was ready for something like that at that point. The expression that was... The advances of the 60s fed in, but at the same time, the methods of the 60s, you know, civil rights, Martin Luther King and all that, wasn't right for that, for, for what it had almost kicked off, you know. Um, the Panthers were far more relevant by this point, mm. you know. So it's all of that played into it, mm -hmm. you know. It's a really, really interesting story um, finish that book i can't wait to read it no <laughs> is it going to be as long as the other two i think it might be a little bit longer than base culture actually okay. i think it will probably base culture is what's that about 400 and something pages <laughs> a lot of pages <laughs> it's a lot of, uh, is it it's yeah 500 mm. yeah it's going to be a, a, i'd say I mean, I don't think the publishers, again, are too happy about that, but they can <laughs> They're never fuck happy off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, good, I can't wait to read it. I mean, there's yeah. something really spectacularly stupid about trying to subtitle a book called Funk is Its Own Reward, mentioning two yes. other genres. I mean, that is just <laughs> <But when laughs> was, bafflingly yeah. contradictory. I mean, I think they took, or this editor, this particular editor, took the notion that it was going to be some sort of encyclopedia, you know? Yeah. And... It's Which not. No one needs, really. No. I mean, what I have done is I've gone through probably, I've got no idea how many, but I tried to get practically every relevant album that was made between 68 and 78 and done sort of one-sentence reviews of them that I want to run all the way along the bottom of the book, you know, so, <laughs> because I've approached it thematically mm -hmm. in the most part, you know like orchestra and this sort of stuff, different avenues, you know? And what that does, you kind of lose the chronology. So I wanted the chronology, because the chronology actually baffled me a bit. It's like, bloody hell, was that made in 69? You know? Yeah, yeah um, sure. Wow, I, I yeah, thought yeah. that was that, you know? Yeah, and yeah. It, it really, it helps you understand what was happening and mm. this kind of rush that happened in 73, 74, you know, and, and that. So I really wanted to get the chronological element in, because I think that's the one thing that's missing from base culture is um, because it looks at things thematically. Yeah. It was much easier to write mm. that way, you know, a series of self-contained essays on things. It lacks the chronology, mm. and I think that's important. But uh, you know, just a very small point, but... When everyone talks about guitar players, one of the things that makes me really angry is no one mentions Jimmy Nolan, who James Brown's guitar player, who would play two notes for 20 minutes and just be central to, to what we're hearing, you know. Sure. No one ever talks about Jimmy Nolan's guitar player. But, I'm so, sure Lloyd but there's so many musicians, yeah, yeah. great musicians, yeah, yeah. that are just... No, I mean, 
I just, uh, I mean, I've got a couple more chapters to write. I'm just literally just finishing. So I've gone back to doing the ones I didn't want to do before. And one of them was Arrangers. And mm. nobody, they really are the unsung yeah, yeah. heroes oh, of this, yeah. you know. Orchestral arrangers, yeah. people like Gene Page. Yes. You know, uh, you know it, it's like... Or Tom Bell. Everybody talks yeah, about yeah. gambling half. Yeah, yeah. It was Tom Bell arranging oh, yeah. that stuff. A genius. You know? Yeah. And, and all of this. And, and also, then you get to this thing about, well, what is it an arranger does? Mm-hmm. You know? And, and you realise, actually, nobody knows, you know. Do you know there's a, quite a good book about um, arrangers? I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was, like, privately published. I've got it at home. I it, talked to this woman, Charlotte Harding, and she's an arranger that's by trade an orchestral arranger, I spoke to her about what an arranger did and how it worked and, you know, and she was really kind of just enlightening about this is it, you know, you wouldn't mm. hear this if it was that. Mm-hmm. Here's, and she, she was really knowledgeable. She said, well, they would arrive with this and then you've got to do that and, yeah. you know, you've got to put this in and that in. And they think, God, these blokes, wow, what did they know? What did they do, you know? Yeah. It's, it's really um, it's a real art and it's really difficult and it's sort of like mixing but not in not yeah, not a recording exactly yeah, you're, yeah. you're actually mixing the music yeah. before it's recorded so yeah. that you can hear all the you know it's such an art it's, it's and yeah. I, I, you know when I was writing this thing about essentially the classical trained involvement in funk mm-hmm. and I, just, I can't remember the bloke's name he was um co-produced a lot of the great Earth, Wind and Fire stuff. Charles yes. Stepney. Charles yeah. Stepney. Yeah. Charles Stepney. What a bloke. Yeah, yeah. He had oh, yeah. written a symphony as his um, papers, you know, right. for his, his university yeah, yeah. degree. Yeah. That had never been performed. The bloke had written it in his head. That's just... Mm. How can you do that? Uh, you know? yeah. And uh. it was performed, you know, like years later. But it was just... That sort of... I mean, there is an argument, I disagree with it, that Earth, Wind & Fire were never quite the same after he died, but certainly Maurice White learnt so much yeah, of how yeah. to make records from that man. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Charles Stepney was the force behind yeah. that, you yes, know, and he incredible. was a classical composer yeah. and arranger. Yeah. And, like, like Tom Bell, they're both yeah. classically trained. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The amount of... If you go through, yeah, yeah. you know, a sort of... a who's who of so many of those musicians, right... You think, blimey, he had classical training. He did that. Mm. He had a scholarship to do music there, you know, and all of this. Um, and you think, no wonder this music was so involved, so in-depth, so varied, because the people doing it really knew what they were doing. Yeah. And it's a, it, very briefly go back to what we were talking about earlier. It goes against this notion of primitivism. Yeah, it does. And, you know, the people forget, a lot of people assumed that most jazz musicians couldn't read music, which is the exact yeah. opposite exact opposite of the yeah. case. They're expert readers of music. I mean, there's probably one famous jazz musician, a uh, piano player, who really didn't read, but aside from that, Errol Garner couldn't read, right? But aside from that, they were expert readers, well, you know? people talk about those um, Isaac Hayes albums, you know, Hot Butts, yeah. To Be Continued, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Barry White and the Love Unlimited mm-hmm. Orchestra. Neither Isaac Hayes or Barry White could read or write music, mm. but they get the credit for that. And they, it, Charlotte was really good explaining this kind of division of labour, if you like, or division of credit mm. between the arranger and the composer. Yes. And 
And that was because, you know, Curtis Mayfield famously fell out with Johnny Pate over that. The bloke he bought in to do the strings on Mm. Superfly. Mm. And Pate did contributed so much Mm. to those records, you know, that he wanted a bigger credit than Curtis was prepared to give him. But this is something else. I mean, people talk about strings being the anti-funk, you know, this idea that... And, yeah, there's a, a... on Spotify, actually, you can find a bunch of Curtis Mayfield stuff, um, anniversary mm. things, which has got things like tunes that you know really well, and then it's got them without the strings on, and you think, well, it's kind of all right. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Another yeah. arranger, I mean, Duke Ellington, Billy Strayhorn. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, Duke Ellington, I think, knew that without Billy Strayhorn, it just wouldn't be the same mm. music. Yeah. It just wouldn't. It's just so interesting, mm. you know, finding out about this and what a difference an arranger could make yeah, sure. on what these things sounded mm-hmm. like. So it's all stuff like that. And I'm, yeah. I'm really kind of enjoying... Fantastic. Good. ...discovering Can't wait. stuff. Cannot wait. Can't wait. Sometime this decade, we hope, yes? <laughs> <laughs> Depends when the decade starts. <laughs> <laughs> Lloyd, it's been fantastic talking to you about your books and about your forthcoming funk term, which we all can't wait for. I'm just going to mention that the week's featured artist is Bessie Lovett. We have three pieces, including your review of her 2012 album, Thankful and Thoughtful. I think I can speak for you as well. Yes. We, we do love Bessie Levette, and I think she's, to me, she's one of the great soul singers, yeah. but she's had this really fascinating career, which has encompassed several different labels. She's been on Atlantic, like, mm-hmm. twice in her career, right? right? And then... And then she signs to Anti Records, home to like Tom Waits, <laughs> in 2005, and she's made, she made about four albums on, right. on Anti. She's got a new album coming out called Lavette Exclamation mark, which is produced. <laughs> I think it's at least the second album that Steve Jordan, who's that the Rolling Stones drummer, right, um, has produced. That comes out on June the 16th. Have you? I mean, when at the time you went, you reviewed Thankful and Thoughtful, had you? been a fan of Betty's for some time before that Lloyd can you remember when you first heard that voice no but I can't remember any of those things (laughs) (laughs) you know people say oh where were you when you first heard that well I don't know you know Mm. it was like 50 Mm. years ago but she was a voice (laughs) that you knew yeah I know I was well aware of who she was and what she did but I think she was probably in my mind right in that kind of category I had for people like Joe Simon, you know, who were really kind of good, but not, didn't mean a lot to me, you know, was a bit, bit old timey, I felt. But at the same time, I mean, it's an incredible voice. It's an extraordinary yeah. voice. Yeah. Um, I think it's funny what you were saying about her popping up on other things. And this is something really interesting. It's like Richard Russell runs a record label, XL, you know, Signing Gil Scott Heron for his last yeah. couple of things. And it's think I think this is great. I mean, that people who have made their pile somewhere else can indulge mm. themselves and say, 
Well, hang on, what do you mean Betty LeVette hasn't got a... Well, we'll sign her. You know, it's not yeah, going to yeah. cost us that much. Yeah. And and that sort of stuff, I think it's great, you know? Yeah, yeah. And not, not altogether surprising, because who else? I mean, you look at the way, I don't know, Polydor or Warner Music Entertainment and that run their business now, and... It's all algorithms, and it's like, well, yeah, yeah. how much is it going to cost us to record? Mm. How much is mm. how much is she going to sell? You know, and it's not a question mm. of, well, actually, that's a prestige artist that would attract, bring you artists. in. Yes. You know, yes. uh, the cool. idea that you're here. It's mm. like people aren't doing it on that kind of instinct anymore. Mm. You know, being yeah. able to make those I decisions. Mean, you know, thank God, there are a handful of. Of indie-ish yeah. labels, particularly in this country, but also in America, where people are, in a sense, old-fashioned record men who are making records for the right reasons, yeah. you know. And often they'll have like one or two hits, and like, as in the old days, those one or two hits will bankroll all the stuff. Which exactly, they're... yeah, exactly, yeah. You know, um, that was the classic one when I was at the NME, and you were there as well, Barney. You might remember this: was how many blue Mercedes did Wham pay for? <laughs> <laughs> there was this dreadful group called Blue Mercedes, <laughs> and they Great were, on, and it was like, well, as long as Epic have got Wham, they can afford to sign a couple of um, Blue Mercedes, Blue Mercedes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. a fleet, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's back to the blood and fire thing, yeah. you know. If they hadn't Had reissued and remastered right. those, you know, Hucknall, Elliot, and Steve Barrow between them, if they hadn't reissued and remastered they wouldn't be they'd be lost mm. you know yeah, so exactly. this sort of thing it's mm. it's great i mean as long as it's being curated respectfully yeah. i know it's all over but the last goodbye Just following on from Betty Levert, we lost Tina Turner a week or two ago and shortly after we recorded the previous episode. Otherwise, we'd obviously have talked about Tina in that episode. So I just thought we would try and pay some tributes to sure, what, sure. You know, what, what, she, what she meant. Fan of Tina Turner? What, how, do you, how do you sort of sum up Tina Turner's career? I was really glad she was there because yeah. there was this presence of this black woman in the rock business as a rock star, right? And there's two ways that a black artist is going to make it in the mainstream. They're either going to be like Beyonce, Mm -hmm. who, together with Jay-Z, had the clout and the sheer overwhelming talent to get to where they were, entirely on their own terms, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. to do exactly what they wanted, how Mm -hmm. they wanted to, right? And become massive. Or... They could be like Tina Turner and give themselves over completely to the mainstream industry. Mm -hmm. But through the strength of their own talent, overwhelming talent, Mm. become massive stars. And what I liked about the Tina Turner part of that thing is you have to be a really strong person not to lose yourself under those circumstances. And she never did. So therefore... Mm. She was a good thing. Yeah. And she had to be a really strong person not to lose herself full stop, given mm. the terrible issues with her, of her marriage to Ike and so on and so forth. You know, which one doesn't, but, you know, isn't who she is as an artist at all. The trouble is, that's become... Do so you think that's become too much of a story? I wrote two or three um, obituaries, and 
you know, the first two thirds yeah, yeah. of About like Turner. Yeah, and you think, yeah. no, actually, what she sure, did yeah. sort of, I know, post Heaven 17, yes. Martian Wear, was yeah. far more important, and that had far more effect. I, I think mean, that's a very good point. Yeah. You know, young yeah. young people like Beyonce would talk mm. about how Tina Turner was mm. Uh, mm. inspiration, and loads of young black girl singers and women singers would look at Tina Turner and think, wow, you yeah. know, maybe you couldn't pay me enough money to play one of her records, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I could be that. Yeah. And that's what it was. And without losing herself. Yeah. And I think to keep bringing it back to this story of a battered wife, yeah. right? And Sure, sure. You know, it, no, no, it's no, a no, bit no, reductive. No, also, to be fair, Lloyd, I mean, the, the fact is that, that that's an important thing because, you know, domestic abuse is a really important subject and that for her to represent, in a sense, a survivor of that is an important thing. I'm not trivialising domestic sure. abuse. Please don't... No, I, no, no, I wasn't saying you were, but that is an aspect of the story which is important. But also, the other thing is, she made... They, I mean, her and her ex-husband, made some fantastic records, you mm. know. I mean, that, that she's someone who went from basically the late 50s, early 60s blues, uh, American live band blues, right up to, as you say popular pop rock stardom in in the 80s and 90s that's some career that's some extraordinary career and and in amongst those things you have songs like river deep mountain high which are astonishing pieces of work yes phil Spector, but it's her it's her voice on that is extraordinary it's absolutely staggering I read a, a tribute to her that sort of pointed out that she rapidly just begun to outshine Ike and that Ike and Tina Turner was really essentially her on some level being the, the real star and that was what he didn't he didn't couldn't, like and, right. and couldn't stomach. And, and I think in a way she had two careers, both of which were musically astonishing. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I, um, it's a regret. I, I saw the, them at the Hammersmith Odeon in 1971, and I was too young and stupid to understand how good what I was seeing was, you know, because, I, again, I had notions of authenticity and so on and so forth. And this was a slick, slick show, you know. And I, I you know, I was 15, and I, I struggled with slick, slick shows, you know. And I regret it now. I think if I'd saw that show, again, you know, today, it'd be a, a completely different experience. I saw Tina Turner once. I never saw Ike and Tina Turner. So Tina Turner at stadium show in Edinburgh. And what I thought was amazing mm. about that was there was the show there, but there was the audience. You know, yeah. this was in Edinburgh. And I'd say the audience was about 80% women of a certain age. Right. And it was quite clear that... Um, I'm not saying they were battered wives, right? But there was this kind of hope and inspiration and solidarity that they got from Tina Turner that I thought was amazing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, well, she'll be much missed, no doubt about that. We've got pieces on on the homepage from 1965 is the first, and then there's a great interview when Private Dancer is about to come out um, from Musician Magazine. This Actually, this was something that, I mean, it's interesting what Mark said about, you know, the show had evolved, I don't know if you said that thing, had evolved into this fantastic singer and some bloke who played guitar, you know. The, 
what Martian Ware did was really allowed her to shine. Yeah. You know, there was there was no question, there was no conflict or, or I love that record when it came but, out. But you know, Great version, it was, wasn't it? Mm. It was they just created mm. a soundscape for her, a sound bed yes. almost. Yeah. And then mm. really encouraged her just to get on with it, mm. you know. And mm. and that I thought uh was the best thing anybody could have done yeah, yeah, for yeah, her, you know, yeah. and and really allowed her to show what she could do. Tell us about a few pieces. Just, just a couple yeah. things quickly. One is Richard Harrington, Washington Post, reviewing Lowell George playing the Lisner Auditorium in George Washington University in Washington, D.C. in <coughs> this is 29th of June 1979. He says, Whereas the last few Little Feet concerts found the group treading familiar waters, George seems to have been baptised anew in rock and roll's primal energy. His voice hasn't sounded so strong in years. His guitar playing remains crisp and direct, often subtly understated. That night, Lowell George died. It's the very last show you played. Yeah. Oh, actually died. Not yeah, just actually, actually oh, died. Right. He, he yeah. went back to his hotel, had a heart attack. Oh. That, 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 that was... And, and really briefly, but it's a fantastic interview. The great Earl Palmer, session drummer, New Orleans played with all Little Richard's hits and so on and so forth, then went to Los Angeles, one of countless hits, yeah. you know. Everyone talks about who's the other drummer. The, but how Blaine. Yeah, but actually, Earl Palmer's every bit as important. And as played a, on some of the, certainly played on some of the Spectre records. Lots of People them, People assume yeah. it's how Blaine. And we got this huge interview, Tony Sherman from Musician 1992. And he, he just, we've got this, the audio tape of this, we have to put on the site because he just comes over marvellously. Right. He says, getting involved in the studio in that exacting way, that's what made me a really confident player. When you walk away from a difficult session or a film, some bastard of a part, knowing the music was hard and you played it perfectly and the 35th take sounded like you loved it, that's when you know, I've arrived, I'm a musician. Not a soloist. You want to be a soloist? Get your own band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he sounds Brilliant. wonderful. Yeah. Brilliant. He sounds wonderful. That's my luck. I think he wrote, didn't Tony Sherman, I think, ghostwrite Earl Palmer's biography? Yes, I think. Yeah. yeah, so I, 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 it probably I mean, came out. Along, I think it's like yeah. a multi cassette interview with Earl Palmer, which I think I just can't wait to digitise and put them You can so. spend next week doing that. I'm happy. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Jasper, what have you got for us? Two things. First of which is. Remarkably, our first piece about Labyrinth. It's a live review of him playing the Jazz Cafe in London, Ian Gittins, in The Guardian in 2012. He Labyrinth. Mm. And Labyrinth, yeah, I think, like is mentioned on the very first page of Sounds right. Like London. Okay. And he's someone who I love. I really, really love his solo record from 2019, Imagination, The Misfit Kid. I love what he did with Sia and Diplo. Just really inventive and really London and really just... Great. And it's interesting, Ian Gittins writes, pop stars become producers, but producers rarely become pop stars. Mark Ronson, for one, has unintentionally demonstrated the pitfalls awaiting Studio Wizard to step from behind the mixing console to centre stage, only to find themselves stymied by a debilitating charisma deficit, which is something that Labyrinth absolutely doesn't have. I mean, he's so charismatic. And he really, he's 
come out of a of a sort of London sound, but he also incorporates sort of gospel influences. He incorporates a really, really broad tapestry of different sounds. I find him fascinating. Uh-huh. You spoke, I think, quite extensively to Mark Williams, his manager, yeah, his manager in, yeah. in the book. Yeah, because Mark had a sound system yeah. history as yeah. well, so he plugged into it on yeah. two or three different levels. But what you said about Labyrinth there is there's been a lot of people like that who could had the capacity to get into music and start performing and producing through grime because mm-hmm. it was so democratic. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was You could come in if you can try something, you could do it. I yeah. mean, I'm not sure what's happened to her recently, but Emily Sande was right. um, mm-hmm. one of those, you yeah. know, and Labyrinth, and they could bring their pop influences and mm. or whatever they wanted and move it on, move, perhaps move from there. But sure. it was, the great thing about it was it gave young inventive kids like lab the chance to get in a studio and do yeah. stuff it wasn't you didn't have to make a demo and send it to an a&r bloke who's going to leave it on his desk right. for four days you know yeah. this you could actually do it and then stick it up on sbtv or youtube or whatever you know and and get heard it was it that's that was the real kind of democratization yeah of that yeah, yeah. happened around that yeah. time. No, I mean, you know, if, if you had a laptop, you could make music. And yeah. that was extraordinary. You know, you didn't need a studio. You didn't need all that cost. You know, that, that. Oh, yeah. and if you had an you imagination know. on a laptop, you could make great The music. four of us, I'm sure, could make a... I mean, it wouldn't be I any good, it. but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Should we do that directly after? <laughs> great idea. Imagination Imagination And then lastly, and it kind of does bring things full circle, it's a piece John Lewis wrote in 2020 about, and I, I do harp on about this jazz scene quite a bit, the London jazz scene, but... <laughs> he does, he does. But this is, it's, it's, it's so perfect because it's about how the London jazz scene has flourished by drawing on everything from hip-hop to calypso and high life to create mm. a sound that is actually very different from American yeah. jazz. He talks to Shabaka Hutchins, Nubaya Garcia, I think, Binker, Goldings from Binker and Moses, and so he writes, what is not often remarked on is how utterly un-American these British musicians sound. Listen to their music and you'll hardly hear any swing or bossa nova rhythms, the usual pulse of American jazz. You won't even hear that much funk, the rhythm that has been the vehicle for most fusion over the past 50 years. Instead, a generation of Londoners are redefining jazz in a different accent. And it's a really interesting piece. I mean, Shabaka Hutchins is a phenomenal musician. They talk about Gary Crosby's Tomorrow's Warriors project, which has been the breeding ground for so many phenomenal young jazz musicians, massively influenced by Afrobeat, massively influenced by Dancehall, as we said, Calypso, High Life, all sorts of things. It's a really interesting piece, and everybody in it says interesting things. So check that one out and I thought it's kind of an interesting yeah, that sounds great because I'm, I'm Courtney Pine and I are good friends and Courtney is like that and uh, things he's told me about not getting on in America when he first went there because his jazz was nothing like their jazz and yeah. so many were actually a bit pissed off by it you know that uh, it wasn't that he took in where he was at the time you know and he he used to be an Eastwood and Saints backing band. He's done loads of stuff with, you know, Light of the World and stuff like that. Right. These are all yeah, yeah. his London Jamaican influences yeah. he put into jazz. Yeah, you know, yeah. this is, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. So, it, And it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's why 
proper London jazz, and this isn't London jazz that's trying to sound American. Yeah, this, yeah, is, yeah. this is why I loved Light of the World and Begrin. Yeah, though, yeah. Was mm. They wanted... It was the, the record companies that made them sound American. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to. They wanted to sound London, but it was like you. Central line, yes. you can be Earth, Wind and Fire. Yes. You, mm-hmm. Light of the World, yeah, yeah. you can be cool in the gang, you know. Yeah. And and it was that. And yeah. uh, no, jazz is probably... I mean, most jazz musicians are so kind of cussed that... Um, well, the proper <laughs> ones, you know. The um, proper ones. No, really. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Courtney has explained, you know, all to me about sort of proper jazz musicians and, and what jazz is and how, you know... Recorded jazz doesn't count because it's only what happens on the bandstand yeah, yeah. at that moment, yeah, yeah. you yeah, know. Yeah. And it, it's great. And I think because London is... It's like, actually, first thing we were talking about here today was... I said, because there was so little choice, everybody heard everything. Mm. So it meant everybody mm. had this to draw on. And London is still like that mm. to a degree. Mm. I mean... You know, my kids grew up listening to nothing but grime because they could, yeah. right? But at the yeah. same time, you still can't avoid yeah. the rest of it. Whereas in New York or Los Angeles and that, you kind of can, mm. you know. You can just listen to your, yeah, your yeah, niche. Yeah, your... And, and live that niche, yeah. you know, whereas you have to be... It's even I think its cultural influences mm. are important as musical influence, direct musical influences mm. at this point. Yeah, and yeah. London is far more literally multicultural yes. no I, don't, I think that's absolutely true and you could you could you could, you could turn it around you can say one of the make great things about white british 70s rock and roll is how it came out of a very similar melting pot of club culture of black american music you know and so on and so forth that, that this this city has this ability to mm. to absorb and John Lewis you. concludes the article on the note. What's exciting is with their cosmopolitan vision of jazz, this London generation are not just understanding history, they're making it. Here's to another hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we need to wrap up. Subscribe to Rocksback Pages to read over 50,000 articles and hear over 800 audio interviews with artists from Jimi Hendrix to Kate Bush. A huge thank you to our guest, Lloyd Bradley. Do buy his classic books, Bass Culture and Sounds Like London, and watch out, of course, for Funk is its own reward coming sometime soon. We will be back in two weeks with Richard Morton Jack to talk about his, um, it's almost as enormous as your books, Lloyd, his Nick Drake biography. So we will be looking into that. Thanks, Lloyd, for coming. It's yeah. great to see no, you. No, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's Good. it's been real, I think. That's <laughs> Mighty real. <laughs> Mighty real. Thanks, okay, Lloyd. Okay, thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye. That concludes episode 153 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Lloyd Bradley. For more on bass culture and sounds like London, visit Lloyd's website at lloydbradley.net. The hosts are Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at Rocks Back Pages.